We've been looking for the last couple of weeks at this man who was born blind from birth. Now, the theme of chapter 9 is best seen in two sections of Scripture. First is verses 1 through 3. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So we should be looking forward to a work of God that is revealed in him. And you can look at the healing, but the healing is just an outward expression of what God has done inside of him. And so if you would combine verses 1 through 3 with verse 38, you see the gist of the chapter, the theme of the chapter. Verse 38 says, Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Worship sprung forth from the hand of God that met this man in a way that he could do nothing of himself. And as the Lord met him, as the Lord approached him, the Lord changed him and again altered the course of his life. We also see an important section of Scripture just before chapter 9. It's important to remember this as we go through chapter 9. It kind of sets the stage. Verse 58, Jesus speaking to the Jews. And again, when John mentions the Jews, usually it speaks of the self-righteous religious community. But in chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you have these religious people, these self-righteous people. Jesus is presenting himself as God before them. And then verse 59, you see their reaction. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and going through the midst of them and so passed by. Now we saw three main things in our past studies in this section of scripture in the beginning of this chapter. The very first thing is what we see is the next thing that happens after Jesus passing by the self-righteous, we saw how the Lord is sovereign in salvation. You should be able to look at your life and see the reality of that. I also should look at my ministry, our ministries, and we should see the reality of it. Salvation is always a work of the Lord. We have been given a role to play, but we give him the glory and the supremacy in this great work of salvation. Verses 1 through 5. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so what we saw was the Lord passing by those who would take up rocks to stone him. Those who would reject Jesus based upon what he has told them, or how he has told them, or who he has told them, that that he is to be. And then he goes to this man, this man who has been hopelessly blind since the day that he was born, and he is now entering into this man's life. Entering into this man's life. And it's very obvious that this man did not come to Christ Christ came to this man. Look at the day that you were born born again. The day that you were born again, you didn't wake up saying, you know what, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you woke up realizing that something needs to happen, something needs to change, but I know on the day that I woke up, that morning I woke up on the day that I was saved, 
I was not thinking I need to develop a relationship with Christ. I was not thinking I need to be born again. But God just met me in a very profound way through the prayers of people, through the witnessing of others. But nonetheless, it was Christ in the midst of that sanctuary that was full that particular evening. When the message was given, it was as if it was just given to me. And as far as responding, I just simply knew that I was surrendering my life to Christ. Just as the Lord sought out Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, King David, so he sought me out as well. And that's, again, we must make the consideration. We so use terms, and we use terms so loosely, and I don't like to get caught up on terms and people using the wrong one. And what I mean by that is, I didn't come to Christ. Christ came to me. What happened that day? Again, it wasn't about me coming to Christ. Christ came to me, and what I did was, through his leading was surrendering myself to Christ. I surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's he who made all the difference. Why? Because he came to me. As he came to me, I surrendered to him. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now that's exactly where I was, and I'm sure that's where you were just before your relationship with the Lord. And so religion, verse 59, that was me for such a long time. My rejection of Christ, those who witnessed to me, those who presented Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and in verse 59, that encapsulates my rejection of Jesus Christ. It was all the way into the time that I realized through the preaching of God's word that I was blind, just as surely I was blind as this blind man was, and just as helpless and hopeless. Secondly, we see Jesus as sovereign over creation, verses 6 and 7. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Salaam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Because God is sovereign over creation, then it would not be a stretch for him to be sovereign over salvation. That was the point that he was making with Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus obviously took it back to the beginning. How can I get into my mother's womb for the second time? And again, it wasn't really making a whole lot of sense to him. But really what Jesus was talking about was, he was talking about just as the God of the beginning, and we looked at that section of scripture, we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. There was what? There was the power of the Holy Spirit, we saw how the Spirit hovered, and we saw that that was the power of the Holy Spirit being used in creation. And then there was a series of, and God said, and God said, and God said. And there was a combination in that, the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Again, how were you saved? Somebody spoke the Word of God to you. But it was the power of the Holy Spirit that caused the change to happen that caused this most valuable change to happen in your life so that you would always look back on that day as a point of faith. No matter what goes on in your life, no matter what hardship enters in, the one thing that you should have an absolute surety and should have absolutely no doubt in, based upon the change that, tra that transformed that day, is that you are born again. 
And so what we have here is, is through this clay, is the Lord giving us a very rich illustration. Again, in verse 6, when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. I looked it up, because you can pretty much look up anything these days. What is clay? I mean, I think of clay, I think of Play-Doh, but I don't think that's what it was back then. I think of the stuff that some Indians may form homes, bricks out of to build homes or whatever. But yeah, what is clay? Clay, as defined by Wikipedia, is a fine-grained soil material that combines one or more minerals with traces of metal oxides and organic matter containing variable amounts of water trapped in the mineral structure. Well, I look at that and think, that's a human body. I mean, in essence, that's all that we, we really are. And so you've got a very rich picture here of the dust of the ground being, being mixed with the, with the saliva of the Lord. Now, what would that be a picture of? Well, we've looked in the past. We saw it in Jesus' meeting with, with, with Nicodemus, and we saw it in very other, various other places, is that the water is usually a picture. A lot of times it's a picture of the Word of God. And so what we really have a picture of is you've got this dust of the ground and you have the words that come from the mouth of Christ. And it's through that that God does this miraculous work. It's when the words that proceed from the mouth of Christ, when, when mouth of Christ, when they come, that change comes about. Another thing, what happens? Very interesting, six, verse 6. What happens if the man refuses the, the clay? One of his friends next to him said, you know what he's doing? And he's going to stick this in your eye? Are you going to let him really do that? Well, what happens if this man refuses the mixture to be applied to his eyes? What happens if he tells the Lord, well, I'm just going to continue on in faith in what God may do? But what I see here is the picture is sometimes you need to do the necessary things in order for God to work about the healing. And you've heard about people on the news who refuse the drugs, the medications that are necessary, the surgical procedures or whatever. I see the Lord working in the midst of that. We, we see, just saw in the, uh, in the prayer request that we have, we see God moving in various lives. And how does he do it? Well, for some people, we, saw, we prayed for Christina last week. She had this infection, this wound wasn't closing. And so she asked for prayer. But then she also went to the doctor and she got antibiotics and she was healed. Now, how was she healed? Did the antibiotics heal her, or did the Lord heal her through the prayers of the saints? I, I believe, and what I see is, all healings come from the Lord. It, it's all a work of the Lord. I, I would never give any credit to anything, but I would still partake in what, what I need to partake in to see that healing come about. So, I don't know, but if this man refuses this clay and saliva mixture, I don't see where he gets his sight back. Verse 7, And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Salaam, which is translated since. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now why was it necessary for him to go and wash in this pool of Salaam? Again, when I was there, this pool is quite a distance away from the temple area. It's probably, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but somewhere around a thousand yards. And you think, well, I'd walk a thousand yards in order to gain my sight, but just think of how difficult that must have been for this man who can't see. And so here's this man who can't see, but he's been given a rich promise. And so even though it was necessary to have that saliva mixed with the 
dust of the ground, that clay applied to his eyes in order to take the medication that was necessary, he still did exhibit faith in what Christ told him to do. I mean, I can see him walking and somebody asking, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go wash in the pool of Salaam and I'm going to get my sight back. And that'd be a hard thing to say. It might be a funny thing for somebody to hear. Really? Are you really going to do that? But what the Lord does is the Lord gives us these points of victory in our faith in him. So just as I said before, this man could look back at that point of faith when, when things get hard, when things get tough, and they will just right out of the boat as we see he's confronted by the religious community. He's got that point that he's able to, when I did that, when I went and washed in that pool, when I did what Jesus said to do, I was healed. And as God worked on me that day, he worked on me that day for the purpose of building faith for even the hard days that were to come after that. And so why was it necessary? Because Jesus said. Why is it necessary to be baptized? Just announce we're going to be having a baptism. Simply because Jesus said. Why is it necessary to celebrate communion, to come to church, to share your faith? Simply because Jesus said. And so building that point of faith, we see the example even in Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 3, we looked at this not too long ago, in verses uh, 16 and 17, we saw where the Lord was baptized. And verse 16 says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You can look at that, and you can see it, and take it for its face value, and, and just kind of allow the reasoning for that to get past you. It was essential that Christ set the example in so many different areas. So what was the Father doing at that baptism? Well, we see the, that dove, the Spirit like a dove that alighted upon him, and so necessary to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's also the confidence that comes from understanding that you're beloved of the Father. Why? Because there's going to be people who call that into question. Case in point, look at the next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why am I going into the wilderness? I mean, I would ask him. Jesus didn't. But nonetheless, the, the fact of the matter is he's going to a place, he's going to a difficult place, but he's being led by the Holy Spirit. And again, any place that God leads you, God is going to keep you. Verse 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, Notice what he says. I've got it underlined in my Bible. If you are the Son of God, well, the father just told him that he was. There was confirmation in that. But what does the devil say? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, you're in a situation. You're in a really hard situation. Forty days and forty nights. Those who know such things says the body starts to feed off of itself. You're at the brink of starvation. And so you could very easily be tempted. Would God really allow one of his children to starve to death? Would God really allow one of his children to go through trials and tribulations? Would God really allow somebody who is faithful in the midst of ministry, who's done all of the things that God has called them to do, 
Am I really a son? And the tempter's going to ask you that, and you're going to question it as well. If you really are the son of God, you, you better step up and do something for your, your situation because Father in heaven isn't. Well, Christ comes back, as we know, with the word, and he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, by, but, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And there it is again. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Test him. Let, let, let's test him. Yeah, he said it, but let's test him. You have the word, but let's test the word to see if it's really true. And that's just what the devil does. But what you see, Christ could always refer back. In his weakness, in the midst of that fasting, and in the midst of trial and the whole thing, it can be so hard to remember which way to look. Always refer back to that which you know is the word of God that confirms the love that the Father has for you. And so although the love for the Father was questioned, he could always go back to that time. Now you have this blind man who's going to, his healing is going to be questioned, but he could always go back to that time. It's that time that I was obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ that this miracle occurred in my life. I look back at the day of my salvation the very same way. I was obedient to the Lord and what he said that day. My life was altered. So even in the midst of difficulties today, I always have that reference point in my life that I can go back and I can be reminded of the great love with which the Father had for me that yet while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and even met me that day and altered my life. It's how God moves. It's how God operates because our lives are hard. There's trials and there's tribulations that we go through. And so God has given us those reference points to go back to, to remember so that we would be strengthened in the faith and we would move on remembering that as he started that good work in us, what does it say? He's going to be faithful to bring it to the place of completion. God's going to bring me to the place of absolute maturity. When's that going to happen? When I'm in heaven. But the fact of the matter is, I'm going there. I'm going to be forever with the Lord. And then what does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? He says, then just the trials, the hardships that we experienced in this life, they're just going to be as a vapor. It's just going to be a little blip on the radar, if you will, in the timeline of our lives. It's going to be vastly overshadowed by the day of our salvation, vastly overshadowed by our eternity in the presence of the Father. And then thirdly, we see Jesus is sovereign over the occasion. The occasion, the occasion of sharing. Verse 8, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Someone said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How are your eyes open? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. And so the very first thing that we see is this man going and speaking of the change that God has worked in his life. These people have no idea what happened, but they do understand that something amazing has occurred in this man's life. There is an outward change of an inward reality. As Christ had touched them, they see he's a changed man. 
as Christ touched you in your life, others saw that you're not quite the person that you used to be, right? I mean, there was a change, right? Okay, just making sure, because I didn't know you before, and I'm thinking as bad as you are right now, you must have been really bad before, so we'll just let it go at that. And so this man obviously did not know very much as far as witnessing for the Lord, but the thing that he did know, it's that which he spoke. He just simply told them exactly of what Jesus did. And this is the essence of witnessing. It's simply telling people of what God had done. I don't know. I was just going about my life. I didn't wake up that morning thinking I needed Christ, but somebody invited me to church, and I don't know why, but I, I just went and, and threw the, 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 the guy up there at the pulpit. He, he spoke for, for 45 minutes. He spoke for an hour. I didn't really think I could sit and listen to anybody speak for an hour, but these words, they had me riveted and come to find out that I was met. I was met by Christ. And it was then I just simply surrendered my life to Christ, and it was all changed. And now I am a new man. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so we see the Lord as he worked in this man's life. It wasn't just for this man's benefit. It was for the benefit of so many others. It's kind of the same thing with the woman of the well in chapter 4. Jesus met her, and would she go back and tell the people, I met a man who knew of everything I've ever done. And she couldn't have really said a whole lot more because she didn't really know a whole lot more. But they, 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 they believed. They, they, they knew something unique was happening here, apparently in this woman's life, and they, they went out to see him, and, and, and so many people got saved just simply because she spoke that which she knew, that which she knew was little, but God did a lot with that very little bit. And so the Holy Spirit can use your trickle to become a raging river for him. So next we see the growth in this man, verses 13 through 17. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put clay in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Speaking of Jesus. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So this man was so excited, so he tells his friends and neighbors. And then he does the next logical thing, if you will, to equate it to our days. They go to church. They go to church. But it's here they're informed that they have a problem. They didn't do it right. They didn't do it right. And, and traditional religion or organized religion can be like that when we get caught up in man's ways. They were caught up in their own ways. They added the traditions to the words of God. And now we have this absolute miracle before their eyes, and they still have the same problem that they had back in, in verse 59 of chapter 8. They can't determine who Jesus is. And there's so many churches out there that they can't determine who Jesus is. So what do they do? They redefine who he is. They redefine who he is according to their own understanding. So although something spiritual happened, it was not according to their ways. See, self-righteous formal religion it just sucks the life and the new life out of the excitement of those who are being saved we experienced that when we first started we were over at the daycare center we had started doing thursday nights we started right away and 
we didn't get a whole lot of new people. Okay, we didn't get any new people for quite a while. And finally, somebody, a new guy comes. I'm in the back, and Pastor Mike, there's a new guy here. It's like, well, what do you want to do? Let's just do what we always do, and we'll see if the new guy stays. Well, the new guy got saved. He was one of, I can't remember his name, but he was one of the first people that got saved. And he came back the next week, and he says, I got a problem. Well, what's, what's the matter? He goes, well, you know, I got saved last week, and I went home, and I told my mom that I got saved. I'm a born-again Christian. And her response is, we're not Christians. We're Lutherans. And you can plug in pretty much anything with any denomination there. But that was so sad. This, this young man, he was probably around 20, somewhere around there, he has this life-changing experience with Christ, and he goes home, and his parents, in this particular case, can't see past their religion. They can't see the change because they're blinded. These guys should be shouting hallelujah because this guy who was blind from birth now sees, but now they're trying to make this determination if it was done correctly. Notice the two works that God is doing here. First, in the formerly blind man, we see a progression. If you look at verse 11, he calls Jesus a man. Verse 17, he calls him a prophet or one who speaks God's words. Verse 27, he describes Jesus as someone worthy of disciples. Verse 33, he describes Jesus as being from God. And then in verse 38, Jesus is somebody who is worthy to be worshipped. He's coming in, he's progressing, he's coming into that deeper relationship with Christ. Now again, this is all transpiring in the same day, but is it transpiring in your life? Are you coming into that deeper awareness of who Christ is, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? So many people get saved and then they fall asleep in the pew or the chair or whatever it might be. Never really growing, but just kind of showing. Just kind of showing up every Sunday or whenever it is that they go to church, but not growing in the knowledge of who Christ is. This man is growing in the knowledge of who Christ is. And when we get to the end, I don't know if we're going to get to the end tonight, but when we get to the end, we see that Jesus meets him there as well. See, Jesus didn't just meet you on the day of your salvation, but he meets you every day of your discipleship progress. And that's an everyday thing for all of us who are born again. But then you look at the self-righteous, and instead of a progression, you see a regression. Verse 16, they say that Jesus is not from God. Verse 18, Jesus is not really a worker of miracles. Verse 24, Jesus is called the sinner. Verse 29, they don't know what to do with Jesus. Verse 41, Jesus pronounces the religious leaders blind and sinful. Luke 8, 18 says, Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him, more will be given. And whoever does not have, and you can plug in faith here, even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. Thirdly, we've seen the change in the blind man. We see the growth of the blind man. Now we see the example through the blind man. Verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son? And really what they're saying, Is this really your son who you say was born blind? Was he really born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews 
For the Jews had agreed already, if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. They're doing the same thing that they did in their own lives when they were going to cast stones at Jesus when they were rejecting Christ. And what are they doing? These who reject Christ, they're causing others to reject him as well. Matter of fact, they're going a little bit further because if they proclaim Jesus as Christ, what are they going to do? They're going to kick him out of the temple. If they're kicked out of the temple, again, think of the Jewish mind. I've got no way of, of worshiping God. I can't offer sacrifice. I've got no way of covering sins. And so just think of the spiritual damage that they do. Spiritual damage that they do, they do through their own self-righteousness and through their own pride. In this man's parents, we see those who would remain willfully ignorant, acknowledging the change, but denying the source. Now, I know if I had a child that suffered some sort of hardship from birth, and all of a sudden he was miraculously delivered from it, I'd want to know exactly how it happened. I, want, I would want to know exactly who did it. I'd want to know all of the information. Case in point, I've heard this before, at least something similar, person, we'll just use the example, a hopeless alcoholic, tried everything, never delivered, continued to struggle with it. Problem is, so many people can be so comfortable with such a person as an alcoholic. We'll even tell them, don't worry about it. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I mean, I'm not making light of that. I know that they're always going to struggle with it, but we'll kind of even give them an excuse. But then God enters in. Somebody shares Christ with them. Christ comes, and that problem that they've had, he radically alters that person's life and that there's an undeniable change. And then a new problem arises. The change of the sinner becomes, well, that person, he speaks of Christ. He speaks of what Christ has done. Now, as he's speaking of Christ, now into that family comes personal conviction. And as that personal conviction comes, there starts to be that clash of the spirit and the clash of the flesh. And they're having to acknowledge their own sins and the need that they have to change. And then they come to that startling conclusion. Again, I've heard words like this before. I liked him better than when he was an alcoholic than when he was a born-again believer. You know, all he ever does is talk about Jesus. At least when he was a drunk, he'd sit in the corner and suck his thumb or the bottle or whatever it was that he did. I mean, I've heard people say that. People say that about homeless people. People say that about people on drugs and whatever. Instead of acknowledging this amazing work that Christ has done and receiving of the witness of that and the reality of that, they reject Christ by rejecting the work that he has done in that particular person. Verse 23, Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But the one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so pray that you've come to an age of maturity. But at that moment, you couldn't explain in detail exactly who Christ is. You probably didn't know as much detail as available for man to know the, the Holy Trinity. Maybe you didn't understand who he was as far as his relationship to the Father and all of that. But the one thing you did know, as you surrendered your life to Christ, you now could see. You once were blind, but you now can see. That's a great starting point. The recognition of the sovereign power of God in your life. God can do great things with that. Then they said to him again, verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, 
and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It's kind of a dig at them. Verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for that fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why why this is a marvelous thing? Excuse me. Why this is a marvelous thing? What... What you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Why is this such a marvelous thing? Well, you look at this, in their haste to discredit Jesus in the face of the obvious, they're really revealing themselves for who they are. And if you would remember, I don't really think you did, but or would, but in chapter 7, verse 27, they said, the, the, the Jews, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Well, in verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. So they're starting to contradict themselves. They're saying they depend upon Moses, but they're not really even doing that. See, the problem is they've gotten to this point of conviction, and now they're starting to stutter, stutter, and they're starting to speak, and they're just starting to try and cover themselves because as this man is speaking, we know what's going on. There's conviction. We know that there's the conviction of sin. There's the conviction of righteousness, Jesus Christ. And there's a conviction of judgment, the end to what a sinner will experience. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man, if Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. How did the blind man approach knowledge? Verse, how did the parents and the Pharisees approach knowledge? Well, with the blind man... It was a, I don't know, I don't know, but then it progressed to the, I know. To them, it was the, I know, I know, but it regressed to the, I don't know. To whom much has been given, much is expected, and this man is standing in the gap for the Lord. And what is happening? The Lord is filling in the blanks. Now, all of a sudden, at the end part, this man is speaking boldly. He's speaking boldly, and he's convicting them. That's why they're going to cast him out away from them. But we see coming to pastor what Jesus is later going to tell his apostles. When they question you, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance that which is necessary. Now, again, it's necessary to study and to understand what God has for us to know the word of God, because how could God bring to remembrance something that you don't know? But here we have this man who knows very little, and God has given him very much that he comes or he's able to withstand them to such a degree. Now, these are men who are learned in the word of God to such a degree that they just get frustrated and they throw him out. Man can know of God, but never will he know God simply by his own intellect. Job chapter 11, verse 7, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? James Montgomery Boyce said, if you are uncertain about spiritual matters, then you need to get your eyes off yourself and others and unto Jesus. Spiritual knowledge is based upon the intervention of God in history and the personal revelation of God by the Holy Spirit to the human soul. 
Do you know God? Do you know God? Now, how would you know God? Well, the only way I know God, the Father, is by Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Well, how do I know Jesus? Because somebody spoke and shared him with me. That Christ came and approached me through the life of somebody else. I didn't reject him as the self-righteous did, although I did for a period of time. But finally, I came to that point that I surrendered to him. What did you surrender? I surrendered everything. There was no holding in. I, I surrendered, first of all, I surrendered my pride in that I came to the point that I realized that I was wrong. I was wrong throughout my life. I was wrong to reject Christ, but I was also wrong in the philosophies and the ideas and the worldview and the meanings of life that I had. In surrendering myself to Christ, I, I surrendered any righteousness that I had built up myself and was clinging to, which was just sin in the sight of the Lord, but it was that which I was holding on to. What did I do? I surrendered my whole intellect to the Lord. And as I did that, the Lord kept me and the Lord built upon it and the Lord continues to do a great work. Continues to, not, not as a pastor, I'm just talking about as a born-again believer. And so what is God doing in, in, in your life? Do you know God? The only way that you can know God is to know Christ. And so it just goes along line to tell me that the greater I develop my relationship with Jesus Christ, the greater I know Lord God of the universe. I understand the things that I hear doing, but I'm also having an element of security in the things that I don't understand. And now look at your life. How many things are there that you're able to understand? Some of us would probably be fit on the head of a pen. For others, you know, relatively, let's just say we've got a genius here amongst us, and that person's able to understand a whole lot. Now, versus how many things are you not able to understand? Well, if what you're able to understand is able to fit on top of a pinhead, this room would fill the stuff with you that you don't understand. I don't understand why God has done this or allowed this or whatever it might be. But what Jesus is offering us is peace in the midst of that. Not ignorance, not ignorance, but just peace in the stuff that he has kept that we'll, we'll never know. As I go through this life, that I would have that peace of God that surpasses understanding. As I'm faced with opposition, that I would have the peace of God to continue to, to move forward as I'm faced with hardships and difficulties in my life, that I would continue to move forward, reaching forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus. And so just as we see Jesus is sovereign over salvation, creation, the occasion, but also in our uh, preservation, verses 35 through 41, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And so... Jesus heard that the self-righteous cast him out. And now when it seems like he has nowhere to go, he's come to the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ever ask or think. Verse 36, he answered and said to him, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, in essence what Jesus is saying, You're accountable, you're responsible. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, 
Therefore, your sin remains. They have responsibility. Now, this blind man, this blind man was in a hopeless, helpless situation. And it was like that all the way into the day that Christ entered his life. And he altered his life. And now he sees. But you have these men who, again, they were presented with uh, Christ, exactly who he is in chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said, most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they rejected him. But they're saying, because you say you see and you don't, then you're going to receive a judgment. And so that ought to be a wake-up call for the church. That ought to be a wake-up call. I mean, how many Bible studies have you sat in? How many Bible studies have I sat in? How many Bible studies have I taught? I'm going to be held to a higher degree of accountability for that. How many times have you, through the Word of God, been presented Christ? And I'm not saying you haven't came into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but I'm just looking at the responsibility that we have as we have come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I look at the landscape, and it's part of the study that I'm preparing for Sunday night, but the landscape of this world, even the landscape of this nation, and especially it seems like we have some sores exposed in this election year and everything that's going on and everything that's being said and things that aren't being said and the truth and the lies and all of these things, and you just think, this nation's a mess. But what were we told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray... And so you look at the state of this nation and then ask the question. The church has done a lot of complaining about all this, but Jesus said he would heal the land if his people humbled themselves, sought after the face of God, and prayed. Is the church doing that then? Is the church really seeking after the Lord? Is the church really humbling themselves? Is the church really praying? We do a lot of complaining again, but are we really praying? We need to see our responsibility in this matter. I'm going to close with Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. You see this man that he was, the man back in, in uh, John chapter 9, he was faced with that opposition, but Christ was there, and Christ enabled him, and Christ is with us, and Christ enables us as we continue to push on in the Lord. It says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. We're going out into the world and we're suffering hardship. Verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only thing that can separate us is the hardness of our heart, which Jesus called the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But other than that, as I move forward in the Lord, I move forward in the love of the Lord for the glory of God, that as he mets myself through the life of somebody else, then he can meet others through my life, as that blind man did, live a life that is sold out to Jesus Christ. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the things that you have contained in it. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us, Lord, in a very real and a very practical way and for the purpose of your glory. And so, Father, I just pray for your word tonight, and I pray for the, the things that you spoke to the people that are here, and I pray, Father, that 
that, Lord, you truly would do great works in all of our lives. But also, Father, I pray we be of the mindset of passing the blessing along, that, Father, we would speak well of the things that you have done. And so, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. I lift up our time of fellowship. I pray, Father, for this last bit of worship and just pray once again that you would inhabit all. And so, Lord, I just pray that the cry of our heart would be that you're glorified through our simple, through our humble lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? There's something I forgot to announce at the beginning. Um, I received a phone call. I received it last year. Uh, it's from a friend of mine that attended another church. She works at a local school, and we did this last year. We got a bunch of backpacks together, and uh, we just brought them down to the school, and they gave them out to some underprivileged kids that were there. They're asking for more backpacks again this year, and so if that's something you're able to give towards, just mark it backpack and put it in the agape box. Uh, we want to provide about 50 backpacks with school supplies and just to be able to have an impact in a, in a child's life and what a blessing that is. Sherry's going to have some product out in the fellowship area, and she's going to close us with two songs tonight. God bless you guys. <laughs>